Whether they like to admit it or not, most people are at a distinct disadvantage when they're negotiating to buy a property. Even when you negotiate for a living, take it from me, it's completely different when you're spending your own money rather than your client or your employer's budget. So how do you negotiate with a professional negotiator without giving away the farm? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report, which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au When you negotiate with most real estate agents, you experience something called information asymmetry. And it doesn't matter how good a bargainer you are or if you claim to carry no emotion to the negotiating table, there is no amount of alpha male ego that can tip the scales in your favour when the agent simply knows more about all the salient details than you do. Of course, not all agents are great negotiators, but there is a hell of a lot of sales training out there for them to skill up while buyers undertake nowhere near the same amount of preparation for a deal. I mean, would a buyer really do a role play to buy a property? Now, today we're aiming to give you an insight into agent dialogue and tricks as we speak with real estate agent and host of Pizza and Property podcast, Todd Sloan. Todd's recently written a book called Australia's Home Buying Guide and gives away some of these secrets in his book. So we're hoping that he's going to dish up more of it today with us. Thank you, Todd, for joining us. Thank you so much for for having me, Chris, Veronica. Pleasure to be here. Todd. Good to have you on, mate. Um, I mean, I guess we'll start uh, as an agent. I mean, do you actually think it's possible to be outsmarted by a buyer? A hundred percent. Yeah, like um, that, that happens. Well, I, I think it's one of those things that if you really know what you're doing, like uh, the, the best way this was ever actually explained to me uh, when people were talking about using buyer's agents, because buyer's agents, obviously, like I'm sure you're both very aware, uh, are not exactly the same representation as sales agents. There's something like 60,000 sales agents and a few thousand buyer's agents out there. And it got described to me one day, if, if you were playing basketball, let's say you played basketball once every sort of 10 years or so, about the same time every, every person sort of moves and, and buys a house. Um, if you were going to play basketball against someone that played professionally every single day of their life, this is what they did inside and out, how do you reckon you'd go on the court? And the answer is obviously terrible. It's, it's not going to work in your favor. So if you're someone that doesn't really know what's going on and you're going to try and outsmart an agent, good luck. I, I don't think it's going to work. But if you've really got a good understanding of how things work, 100%. Do you, so you think, think if you're in a sort of buyer's agent, you do it all day every day and maybe it's an inexperienced agent that, you know, doesn't know, you could sort of outsmart the agent a little bit or do you think that ultimately the agent is the one sort of holding the, the property, right, and the vendor and do you think that they always believe that they can outsmart the buyer or, you know, do you think that, yeah. 
Well, possibly, but then, I mean, it, ego can be a really good thing when it comes to negotiation though as well. Like if egos are really, really flared up, then it can kind of work. I'm not a fighter, but a lot of my mates are. It can kind of work in like a jujitsu type fashion where it's like the bigger the person you use their weight against them and, and just start sort of playing it to your advantage. So if you do feel that someone is, they think they're amazing at what they do, but maybe they're not, then they'd maybe cater to, to that ego a little bit and sort of just, just gently sort of push things in the direction you want them to go. <laughs> I love that one. Um, I would suggest also potentially the answer to any of those questions would de- sort of depend on market conditions, right? So if it's a seller's market, buyers have got Buckley's to be able to outsmart agents. You know, it doesn't take the smartest agent to better negotiate a deal in a seller's market, really. A doorstop could sell a house, right? Um Whereas in a buyer's market, that's where the buyer has the upper hand and and there's more choice and less FOMO and they're, they're less driven by their own emotions and their own fears. Um, and so potentially that is would underpin uh, a successful negotiation, you know, whether it's successful for the vendor or the buyer, uh, you know, depending on who or I guess what your definition of success is. Would you say though, Todd, I mean, what I really want to get into here, this episode, is really getting into the psyche of agents and getting into Mm. the tricks that agents use, the... the, the dialogue that agents use, ways in which agents actually create FOMO and and agitate, when agents bluff, how they bluff, why they bluff. And also I think another thing that is really quite interesting is that um, when you're negotiating, one thing I often say to my clients is like we're, we're actually not, who cares about what the vendor wants? Who cares about what the agent wants? We're actually we're actually competing with other buyers. We're not competing with either the agent or the vendor. So there's right. certain, there's times when we're negotiating effectively, and it's what I talk about at auction. Um, often the way I bid at auction is to stop other people bidding. I'm not trying to pass a message onto the agent or the vendor. I'm trying to stop other people bidding. But there are times where there's not many bidders there where I've got to pass a message onto the agent and the and the vendor, you know what I mean? So I'm curious, underneath, you know, lift the lid on this, share with us, please, what are some of the things that real estate agents will do? What do they know that buyers don't know? And how do they use that to their advantage? So a lot of the time, an, an agent and a good agent is going to try and get the most they can for their vendor. It's the whole reason you pay them money. The same way that on the flip side of that, a good buyer's agent is going to try and secure the property for the best possible price for the buyer. So they just, they're, they're opposites. They're mirror image of each other. So what you want to try and do as an agent is, is find things that aren't easy to walk away from for a buyer. And what I mean by that is like find their needs, find their musts, things like that. The, the big thing that you need to remember is it's fine to tell an agent, and in my opinion, it's fine to tell an agent, yeah, I like that house. That's a nice house. But if you start telling an agent, oh my God, I need this house. This is my dream. Since I was 12 years old, I used to walk past here on my little little bike and I did blah, 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 blah. And you start telling stories and people do this. That's going to be used against you. Like that is is something that is obviously a huge emotional trigger for you. And then if later on you try to, to play like Barry Cool, like, oh yeah, you know, oh, maybe I like the house. Nah, I, I know that you you that nah, you don't just kind of like the house. I know you absolutely love the house, and this is the only one that's going to come up. And there's a scarcity factor and all the rest of it. It's it's about that FOMO, and that's a re- very real thing. But this is a buyer's. Oh, sorry, other way around. This is a seller's market. Very clearly, right now, when it's a buyer's market, it does shift a little bit. And this is the constant balance you have to have as an agent as well as a, a buyer is really looking at what are the other options. 
if you know that someone doesn't have very many options, then you can use that to your vendor's advantage. So I guess in, in a roundabout way, that's what I'm saying is don't make it sound like you're disinterested because then you'll be written off as well. You'll either be like, yeah, okay, they don't really like it. Or if we go sign a contract with them, maybe they're going to call off if they find something else. But don't make it sound like you just absolutely need to have it above everything. That makes sense? Yeah. Is there a catch-22 there where the, the vendor or the agent thinks, well, they're not even that interested. I'm going to focus my attention on this group of buyers or this buyer. And, you know, but agents do have a preferential treatment in terms of, you know, yes, they want to maximize the sale price for the vendor, but... To, to be honest, they also just want to guarantee that the deal actually goes through and they can move on to selling other properties as well. So by, by potentially sitting on the fence, you know, especially in a hot market, are you already sort of potentially not in their mind the buyer that's going to buy that property? And, and maybe part of that, you know, psyche is that they've already pigeonholed this person's going to buy it and they focus their energy on the wrong person. Potentially. And that's why yeah, you, you definitely don't want to sit on that sort of like blase of, yeah, yeah, I guess I kind of like it because you're right. Exactly that will happen. But it's it's mm. a balancing act. Like the, the way that I, I describe it in the book is around like dating. If you were to sit down with someone and let's say that they're, they're stunning, they're interesting, they're funny, they're everything that you're looking for. And then by the end of the day, you're just like, oh my God, I, I love you. I think this is amazing. I've got some keys cut for my house. And, and you're just like, it'd be like, back up. Okay. Wow. This is way too much, way too soon. Okay. It's the same kind of thing with property. But if maybe you, at the end of the day, you just said, hey, had a great time. It'd be awesome to see you again next week or, or whatever it is. You don't just want to blow them off, but you also don't want to come on so strong that it's going to work against you. It's the same kind of uh, principle with, with buying houses, I feel. Do, do you think you change this though to the agent? Like how many different agent types? You know, when you're sort of, for example, looking at, you know, not every agent deals the same way, right? A lot of people want sort of just get it off the market. Everyone wants to take it to auction. Some people have sort of got big volume and, and smaller sales. Some mm-hmm. are more prestige market. Some have got, you know, dealing with lots of downsizers. And so every agent deals different ways. Do you change your your way you negotiate to different agents? And how many different types of agents do you do you sort of categorize people into? I guess I don't really categorize the same way, but negotiation is, is definitely not the, the spandex of, of how you transact. It's not a one size fits all. It, it is very much a, a character sort of thing. So if you're negotiating with someone that's um, ex-military background, uh, that's very straight up and down, you do that to someone or you do that differently to if someone was very artsy, fun, loving, that kind of thing. You do need to make sure it's it's not a, a complete cookie cutter mm. approach to everyone. Otherwise, what's really going to work well on one person is going to rub the other one completely the wrong way as well. So getting to your question then on, as far as agents are concerned, and this, this all comes back to how much effort you want to put in. If you actually really want to be good at this as a buyer, you can. Like, do the same training that agents do and turn it around. Like Google, Josh Vegan, Tom Panos, like just start listening to agent training. And then when the scripts and dialogue come out of the agent's mouth, you can be like, oh yeah, I know how to handle that one. But the, the fact of the matter is most people aren't going to do that because it's work. It's a lot of work. Well, Josh Vegan has a, has a podcast that I've listened to because I like to get underneath and understand some of that dialogue and I think that's a really good point you raised there. Uh, and likewise, Tom Panos, you know, you get into LinkedIn, you can always get, you know, 60 seconds of, of some of Tom's dialogue and how he's uh, training agents. What, what scares me, I guess, is um, the, what's the word? It's the intensity of the 
practice that some of these agents go into. And so what's sort of interesting is that if you deal with enough of the type of agents that have been trained by various trainers, you are going to start hearing the same thing mm-hmm. from different agents. You know, there's a there's a formula mm. to it. And certainly when I'm training new staff in my business, I'm like, listen, there's certain things that I say to listen for. You know, there's like, for instance, I'll give you an example. When an agent is trying to make what we call manufacture an offer, and that is when they are nervous about an auction, and they want to actually try to get offers beforehand because they don't really want to let it run because a public auction is really obvious if there's not as much competition as they expected, Um, they will actually try to engineer an offer or manufacture an offer. And so there's certain dialogue that they will use. And so they'll come out with, oh, I've got a buyer and he's coming in tomorrow and I'm expecting the offer to be X. And you go, that's really interesting because I find it fascinating that that buyer would tell you what their offer is going to be because when I I was selling, I never had buyers tell me in advance what my off, what their offer was going to be. It's amazing that they would tell you in advance what their offer is going to be, you know. Mm-hmm. And and it's like, so I was like, let's just watch. I go back to the client and go, right, they're shaping up. They want an offer, right? They'll get, they'll probably, if there's enough interest out there, they'll get someone to buy. They'll get that offer. Yep. And then it'll look like they were telling the truth. <laughs> and if they don't get that offer, they're going to keep pressing and they'll be they'll say different things. Oh, the next one will be, oh, I got an offer and the vendors are considering it, but it's got a six-month settlement and so that's not really attractive. Really? A six-month settlement? It's quite amazing how many people are out there offering six-month settlements <laughs> at the moment. You know, there's like, of course, it, and so it's all the idea is to actually give the buyer some level of confidence that somebody else is interested in it. You're not the only goose. Mm-hmm. But they're still trying to generate some level of urgency. So I'm really curious, as an agent, can you give us some examples of that you use and that you've heard of what agents will use to create urgency when that urgency doesn't actually exist other than the fact that the agent needs to create it? So non-committal language is a big thing that you want to look for. You can still hype something up, make it sound like mm. everyone's jumping on it, but using words like should be, almost, kind of, nearly there, like not actual, we have an offer it is going to buy the property in the next 24 hours okay because that could be real it could be it could be fake okay like legislatively mm. we're not at least in south australia we're not allowed to lie and say we've got offers when we don't okay? you either got offers or you don't have offers but we're also not allowed to say all right i've got one at 1 million one at 1.05 one at 1.03 we're not allowed to just put them all on the table either so this is something that I always walk my vendors through when they're buying a property is to say, ask the, the agent, if they're starting to put real pressure on you, how many offers do you actually have in writing? Because if they're saying things like, oh, I'm, just, I'm expecting like three offers to come in tomorrow or, you know, this one isn't going to last long. I'm, I'm expecting a decision to happen in the next like seven hours, blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, cool. How many offers do you have in writing? If that comes back to zero, then all the rest of that was just fluff and huff and puff. There's there's nothing to it. But if it comes back to, you know, I've got 12 offers in writing, well, then you know what? Maybe there's some legitimacy to what they're saying. Maybe they're all 12 terrible offers, but that comes down to the the bluffing game of, of how well can you read it and, and you really want to start opening things up a little bit more in detail. That Do you know might- in um, different states, Todd, if you can, you know, like in Queensland or Victoria or New South Wales, whether they can sort of, you know, scoot around that a little bit and pretend they've got offers. You said in Adelaide that you you can't say you've got offers unless you actually have. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but in other states, can they do that? So in, in other states, well, one of the things that you do want to watch for though as well is like what Veronica said is someone's indicated that they're willing to pay X. You say something like that. You can also say like, I've got a verbal offer of X and this is why I don't present a verbal offer because to me, a verbal offer is not an offer. If someone can't take the 30 seconds it takes to actually go, here you go, this is my offer and jot it down on a piece of paper, it's nothing. However, it doesn't mean that you can't say, oh, well, I had a verbal offer today of someone saying blah, 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 obviously not saying the price. So you can kind of scoot around legislation a little bit like that by using stuff that is legit, but isn't legit at the same time. Does that make sense? (laughs) This is what you, I think what you, when you said non-committal language that you hit the nail on the head, Hmm. that's exactly it. It's like, and that is one of the things that I will say to a, to an agent when they come to me with one of these non-committal offers with rabbities around them is, <laughs> has the vendor accepted it? Mm. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, so so therefore it's still on the market. It's rejected, right? Or it didn't really exist or whatever. It doesn't really matter because things change once the vendor accepts an offer. All of a sudden, the Correct. gears change, yep. and I hear it in an agent's voice as well. But I think I think that non-committal uh, language is a really good tip for people. And Chris was just asking there about legislation in different states. It is it is different in different states. There's no doubt about it. Um, around auction quoting and also handling offers and 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 how they're they're. Um, the various the, the the intent is sort of roughly the same across the country, mm-hmm. but the thing is that it's that language that agents use, which isn't exactly making an offer. It's it's around skirting around. This is where agents are very good at this, and the same with auction price guides. A lot of that is skirting around the truth, and so I'm curious because I know that in Adelaide. Uh, or in in South Australia, there's one little tiny piece of legislation that I think is fantastic, and that mm-hmm. is the auction reserve. Do you want to tell us a bit about that, um, Todd? Because I I wish the entire country would adopt this. Are you talking about the 10% variation? That's what I'm talking about, yes. Okay, so in in South Australia, you can't have more than a 10% variation in your auction reserve price from what's called your vendor's acceptable sell price. So when you list a property as an agent, there's three different figures you need to actually put on the sales agency. First of all, you put agent's estimate selling price, and then you put the vendor's acceptable sell price, and then the advertised price. So the agent's estimate selling price and the, the sorry the agent's estimate selling price and the vendor's acceptable sell price. A lot of the time they're somewhat similar, but one of the keys with that as well is you can't ever advertise a property below whatever the lower of those two figures are. So let's say uh, I'm selling Veronica's property for her here in Adelaide. And I say, yep, Veronica, it's worth a million dollars. She's like, no, you know what, Todd? I think it's worth $1.4 million. I'm like, okay, no worries. This is my agent's estimate. That's yours. We can't advertise that property below a million though because that is the, the sorry, below 1.4 because that is the higher of the two. But then on auction day as well, Veronica can't set her reserve any more than $140,000 either way. So what this is designed to do is to stop ridiculous bait pricing because otherwise what can happen is, you, we've all seen it before, price it low, watch it go. It's, there's one thing pushing up against it and having something that still has a bit of an attraction to the price because you don't want to burn a campaign as an agent and put the price so high that you scare everyone off. But there's a big difference between pricing it at 600000 knowing full well this bloody thing is going to go for 1.1 every day of the week. And so that way, is there, there's a huge risk for the vendor because if you do price it at 600000 behind closed doors, you're not allowed to set your auction reserve any more than 660000 
So that it's it's designed to to really put a, a halt on that bait pricing. But even in this situation, though, it comes if, for example, you could easily still underquote, though, right? You could still get massive results way above the auction reserve and way above ten percent of what you've quoted as, because you could say it's worth a million. You could set the reserve at a million, um, and realistically, it could sell for one point three. So it doesn't really protect you from underquoting, though, does it? Yeah, Hang no, on, Chris. Wait, let's get the yeah. definition of underquoting correct. Right, competition that goes over expectation is not a result of underquoting necessarily. Right, um, an outrageous price and buyers just, you know, go hell for leather and actually push a price way over expectation. That's not underquoting. That's not a result of underquoting. Where underquoting is the situation is where the agent has quite calculatedly chosen a point at which to quote that property, which they know is under where yeah. anywhere the reality of where it will go in way more than 10% under. And it's a deliberate and calculated, um, you know, approach, right? And so, Yes, competition could take it way over reserve, and that's fine. That what I like about this legislation is that it, it takes away the ability for the agent and the owner to collude to actually agree to put a lower figure on the agency agreement in order for the quoting to be low so that they can actually hope to gain or create heaps and heaps, heaps more competition than they otherwise would. And it's a delicate act, this, right, because everyone plays a part. Buyers play a part in this as well because buyers don't trust honest agents, let's face it. Um, but what I, as I said, what I like about South Australia is it puts a cap on that and by limiting what the reserve can be, it, it takes away the ability for an agent to collude with the owner to, to actually quote particularly low. Mm -hmm. And But on the other mm. side, so that, that for me is great. I just wish every state would ad adopt something like that. Um, but you also said something there, Todd, about uh, the way in which you – you can't say that you've had an offer if you haven't had an offer. Can you tell us through more of that sort of negotiation legislation? Yeah. So if, if we've got four offers, we've got four offers. I can't tell you we've got 20 offers. If we've got no offers, we've got no offers. I can't tell you we've got 20. But I also can't tell you the, the price though as well. And that's one of the things that a good agent, in my opinion, will use their advantage for their vendor is whether we're selling for a million and we got three offers of 800,000, but someone else is willing to, to pay a million or above. Well, great. I'm still going to use those other offers we do have as some leverage there, but you can't use that leverage and make it up if, if mm. it's not actually there. So if I offered you a, a million and 10, yep. you can't go to other buyers and say, look, we've got an offer of a million and 10. No, we're, so we're, you can't shop it around. We're, we're not, we can shop the idea. We can shop that we have an offer, but we can't actually shop, yes, we have this offer of a million and ten. So what mm. can you say? Like how do you then let a buyer know that, look, it's, it's you know, particularly if it's been accepted, but I've got an offer. I can't disclose the amount of that offer. So how do you then, what dialogue and language do you use to sort of try to give some level of guidance to a buyer so they give you their best and final or they actually increase the offer? That's a perfect way to actually put it as best and final. So the way, again, let, let's say Chris and I are negotiating this time and he's just put in his, his million ten and I've just got an offer that I'm going to say is is pretty strong, okay? So I'm going to dance around things. Again, this is coming back to the non-committal language as well. Just saying, look, Chris, I, I know you really like 123 Fake Street. I've got to let you know, mate. We've just had another offer come in. I'm going to be sitting down with the vendors later on tonight. I'm going to be presenting this. I've got to tell you, Chris, they're going to be considering this, mate. 
I need to know what is your best and final offer because is this going to be home for, for you or are you going to let it be home for someone else? Now, in there, I might choose to, to actually press on what Chris talked about, pushing his bike across the, the front yard of when he was 12 years old or whatever it is. Again, coming back to an emotional trigger. It doesn't matter about the numbers there. It matters about how much Chris wants this. And I don't care if he's approved for a billion dollars or a million dollars. Again, it's, it's irrelevant. It's not irrelevant if he's approved for 200,000. We're probably going to have some problems there. But, but otherwise, it's, it's more about the emotional side to things. And then I'll ask Chris a question. So, Chris, tell me, if, if this was to, to sell for, for 1.5, would you be out? Naturally, Chris is going to go, of course I'd be out. That's ridiculous. That's way too much. I'm like, no, that's totally fine. But what you want to do though, sit down with your, your other half if you bind it with the other half or, or a mate maybe if you bind it by yourself. Start working your way backwards from somewhere crazy. Okay, start. What if I told you tomorrow, sorry, Chris, you missed out 1.4. You're still interested? No, no, don't, no, way too much. Okay, what about 1.3, 1.25, 1. And to start chipping down until you get to the price where it's like, you know what, actually, if he called me and told me it sold for that, I really would be annoyed because that's what I actually am happy to pay. And this is how you really sort of walk someone through that, that walk away figure. And I genuinely can't give that to people because property is a very subjective thing, especially when there's things like views involved, things that you can't really put a very easy dollar value on. Like personally, I'm a sucker for a view. The first place I ever bought was a crap investment, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. <laughs> but I walked into the bedroom and I looked down North Terrace in the city. and I was like, oh my God, I want this place. Like the agent saw me coming and every trick in the book got thrown at me. And I fell for all of them as well because I was 20 years old and I had no idea what I was doing. But getting back to, to the point and your question of it, I'd, I'd actually put it back onto the buyer and start walking them backwards to where is, is that walk away figure. That's funny. I've never had, I have that conversation with clients before mm -hmm. we actually commence negotiations, mm -hmm. but of course I'm a buyer's agent and I've never actually had that, when I was a sales agent, I'd never had that type of conversation with buyers and I've never had a sales agent try that way with me either. But I have had it the other way around where they ratchet the price up. So they, mm -hmm. if it's worth say a million and, you know, 1.1, .1, they'll say, so Veronica, if you, if we get an offer at 115 and, and um, the vendor is going to accept it, do I need to come back to you to check in with your client or not? <laughs> and, and so they do it, ratchet it upwards, right? And it's a tricky question to answer that mm -hmm. one. Like I have to say, the first time it was presented to me, you know, in my early days as a buyer's agent, I went, shit, I'm in a corner. I'm <laughs> do I say, if I say no, then they won't come back to me. And if I say yes, I've given away something, you know. So it, though it's a very clever question, mm. you know, that, for that, that exact reason. All of a sudden people are in, in a corner. And that kind of style I refer to as trapdoor negotiating when you've always got a little trapdoor that you can slip away into. Because if that does get received negatively, then he's like, that's fine. I was just asking the question. This isn't an official counter offer. I just want to know where everyone's sitting on the table, blah, blah, blah. And you, and you, you just walk straight past it. But if it's received positively, fantastic. Mm. That's the new price. Exactly. So we, we what often- What about, um, Bob, where, you know, like if, for example, you just don't even know where to start the negotiation. We're seeing this a lot at this, the moment where, um, yeah, there's price guides, but we know those price guides are 10, 20, you know, 30% under is what it's actually selling for. Um, I mean, even yesterday, a client was trying to buy a cracking, you know, apartment in, in Sydney. Um, price guide was 1.4. Um, agents even told him they've, they've, had, they've made offers in the 1.6s, 15% mm -hmm. over the price guide almost, and the, the agents told him the reserves 1.7. Um, and so, you know, how do you sort of, you know, 
get involved with that sort of to know where to start your negotiation? How do you find out where the agent's really going to sell the property for? There is no solid answer to this question. Unfortunately, Chris, right now we're all chasing prices. Anyone that tells you they know exactly where the market's going, like please like give me their details. I would love to talk to them. But the the fact of it is the way that we price a property is going off historical data. Normally we'll go back anywhere between sort of six months, 12 months, uh, depending on the size of the suburb, the type of the property or that kind of stuff. Now it's almost a waste of time to go back any more than three months. And even then we're putting premiums on properties and they're still going over. So it's, it's just as tricky for us. And that's why when people say, what's it going to sell for? I'm like, I don't know. You're deciding that one. It, it really is just about turning around on what, what are you happy to pay? Just about everything I'm selling now is either best offer buy or auction. Because if, if I put a price on it, like uh, for example, so well, one of the properties, this actually was a best offer buy. We're, and I won't give away addresses. It's about to, to settle soon. This one is, is all, what was it about? High fives, maybe even into the mid sixes if we got lucky. Okay, beautiful property. Now, we got offers all around those kinds of mid sixes. Okay, so we're already pretty happy with that. One in the higher sixes. And it was a case of look, everything is looking good. Then all of a sudden, got up to, to the early sevens. Okay, that was already smashingly well. I had nothing to, to justify that. Then last minute, nine o'clock on a Tuesday night, just before everything was about to, to go nice and go to contract, I get a call from someone else that wanted to be in the sevens because I just basically said to them, unless you've got a seven in front of your offer, we're all sort of wasting our time. And they said, look, do I need to be in the low sevens or the high sevens? Naturally, as the agent, I said, you need to be in the high sevens if this is really what you want. So then with the high sevens offer, I then went back to our other guys that were at the top and just, again, went through the, the whole dialogue of it. We ended up selling it for $800,000. I have nothing to back up 700000 let alone 800000 And it's not my job to value a property in that, that sense. It's my job to get the most I can for a vendor. But if you had have asked me beforehand, will that sell for 800000 would be like, no, no, it won't. But we had two people that were nipping each other's heels and then a whole bunch of others that, that were probably more at the, the right range. But it wasn't just one crazy sort of buyer. We had, we had a few of them there. But it's just about nothing mm. to, to back it up. So you're able to give guidance around where the price sort of needs to be without actually giving an offer. Um, and that's sort of the way when I was a sales agent, I used to prefer to do it that way rather than give the exact offer as well. And I've, I've, I've often wonder, you know, if you had a parallel universe, you'd mm. be able to work out which was most effective right? It's this. a bit the same as the way the auctions are at the moment. We've got this hybrid. Some auctions are online in Sydney and, and some are back on site, right? Some agents have actually chosen to keep their auctions online, which I find interesting. Mm. And I think that in a hot market, online is actually a better, gets better results. I think in a slow market, on site would get better results. And I wonder also in terms of the negotiation style, I wonder uh, whether not being able to give the uh, uh, shop the other offers around and actually give the amount, I wonder sometimes whether that actually does give better better results for a um, for the vendor. You know, so the legislation tells you you can't give the offers. You know, you've got to wonder well, who's that protecting in sometimes. Mm. Well, and I mean, there, there's a lot of uh, digital uh, auctions now as well that you're seeing. So not just the online, but you would have seen like, um, I don't know if I'm allowed to name any names, but like things like market buy and stuff like that, like they're, they're really starting to gain some traction. And 
I'm still, I don't know. Personally, I like the auction out the front yard or in the backyard. I, I think there's something about the energy of it that, that changes things, but that's my own personal opinion. But when it all strips down to it as an agent, the funnest part of my job, and I believe the people, the reason people pay me money is because of the negotiation. That, that's when you really earn your money, I feel, at least in this job. And with the, the auction side of it, whilst there's definitely negotiations that take place, it's not the same thing. It's, it's really happening with the auctioneer. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Yeah, totally. Do you I mean, think that, um, Todd, that, that a personal sort of approach then, like we've got a, a few success stories recently where, you know, a client um, has, you know, potentially, you know, gone to the, the real estate offers and, uh, office and, you know, presented the offer personally and written a letter, you know, saying to the vendor how much they love the property and that they, they want to grow the kids up there, et cetera. Um, do, you, do you, as an agent, do you think all that really matters or do you think, you know, how, what percentage of vendors really care about that? I mean, or do, you know, is it all a bit of a waste of time or do you think it's actually a tangible thing that a lot of buyers should consider doing is writing a personal letter, you know, going to the real estate office, all those sort of personal touches? So I kind of look at that the same way I'd look at a sales campaign. And like when I sit down with uh, a client, I'll actually talk to them about what we call stacking. You stack enough little opportunities on top of each other, you build a big opportunity the same kind of thing. Is that going to work every time? Absolutely not. Is it going to work sometimes? Yeah, there's absolutely a chance of it. As far as stories are concerned, I had one. This was selling in an outer sort of coastal area in, in Adelaide and it was a deceased estate. And we got to realistically, this property should have been worth around that kind of 400, but it was very, very unique. So it was kind of like, well, it's, it's a little bit of anyone's guess. There's a bit of subjectiveness to it. I got an offer in the first week of 450, which very quickly fell over after they talked to some friends that went, you paid how much for that property? And they withdrew the contract. But because now the vendors were educated that 450 is absolutely doable, every other offer that I brought them that was sitting more around that kind of 390 to 410 range, they just went, no, that's that's way too far below where where we're supposed to be. I ended up getting a a letter, a three-page letter, handwritten by a young lady who did exactly what you're talking about, Chris. We're going to bring up the the children here. We're blah, blah, blah. One of them's name's Lacey. She's three years old. It wasn't actually her name, but you know, and it just went into all this detail. And I'd never had it happen to me before. And I remember meeting the the vendor at his work site and just handing it to him and just saying, just read it. I'm not going to say anything else. I'm not even going to tell you what it is, but just read it. Because when I read it at the time, my girlfriend at the time was like crying. It was like super beautiful. It was really, really from the heart. He called me up. His first things were checking if I wrote it. And he's like, just tell me, like, did you write this? Did you have someone write this? I'm like, I absolutely did not. <laughs> um, I said, that, that's genuinely from the buyer. And I said, like, hand on the heart, if you want, I can even put you in touch with them. Uh, we'd never do that. But I said, I can even put you in touch with them so you can verify this. I'm not making this up. And he's like, mum and dad would have wanted them to live here. Let's, let's make it happen. And, and their offer was still good. Like, don't get me wrong. It wasn't like they undersold it or anything, but it, it educated the vendors in a way of like, yes, this, this is what we need to do. We need to, to let go because 
for a lot of people, like there's a property that's still on the market now. I've been doing this for, for seven or so years. Still on the market now from when I started in real estate. They've gone on and off. And when I actually, again, I won't name any addresses. When I actually sat down with them probably about five years ago and tried to list it myself, it really came back to mum and dad passed away. This is the last thing they're holding on to from mum and dad. And by selling it, they need to really have that let go and closure. Neither of the brothers were ready to do that. And that's why they are ridiculously overpriced. And it's because they, they just don't want to actually let go. There's, there's more to the story than the bricks and mortar a lot of the time. It's funny that you should give that as an example because that's exactly what was going through my head when Chris asked the question. It was like, well, I would imagine that that's going to tip the scales only in a very small percentage of times and typically when it's not a seller's market mm -hmm. and when the seller has to bow and accept a, a price that they're not really happy with. And it gives them a level of, um, it's, there's all psychology here. It's basically just sort of allowing them to justify in their mind why they gave the property away. Because, you know, there's that line from, I'm not going to give it away. I can always rent it out. There's all those lines <laughs> that vendors trot out when they're not that that serious about selling. And um, so, yeah, I, you know, it could tip the scales, I guess, if you got one of those sort of vendors. It just needs, it needs some level of comfort that they're actually not making a silly decision for themselves. And, and maybe that would work. But in the vast majority of situations that I'm in and I've had clients ask me should I write a letter I'm like don't waste your time well, <laughs> like you just look like you know you just look like you're trying it on you know if it's a competitive market it's like you know, it, that doesn't count you know but I can there are certainly times I could it, and that example that you gave I could just see yes I could see how that would work then yeah because 90% of the time actually even more than that it's probably more like 98% of the time it, it's not going to work it, it really is one of those one percenters but I don't know, maybe maybe write one letter and photocopy it. I don't know. Save yourself a bit of time. <laughs> yeah, the other thing too that buyers, I mean, there's a lot of thing that buyers, things that buyers do that don't really help themselves. They think they're the right things to do, but they, you know, they just get them nowhere. And one of them is lowball offers. You know, I always say to a client, if we're going to make an offer, there needs to be a point to the offer, right? We're either making mm. an offer because we're wanting to get a, we're wanting the vendor to bite. Mm. We're wanting a counter offer. We want to understand where they're at because at the moment we've got no information. Or if we're making an offer because we actually want to buy it and we, we, we're confident that the price we're going to offer is, if not going to buy it, it's close to what's going to buy it. You know, so mm. there's a point to making. But a lot of, a lot of buyers I talk to, they say, oh, I made this really low ball offer. And then I say, well, and then what happened? Nothing. Crickets. They didn't even come back to me. I'm like, well, why? What mm. do you expect to happen? You know? So what are some of the things that you observe that buyers do that really don't help them? Mm. In, in this market, like crazy town that we're in at the moment or in like a, a more stable market? Mm. Either or. Either or. Okay. Well, putting in low offers right now is just, it's a guaranteed way to just waste your weekends. You're never going to get anywhere. No one is, and if they are, again, introduce me to them, please. But no one is snatching bargains at the moment. It's, it's just not happening. It's either fair market value or, or above. And realistically, it's hardly even ever fair market value, let alone in bargain territory. So if you're going to be putting in really low offers, you, you want to do that in a buyer's market when the, the scales have absolutely tipped in the other direction. But if you're also going to do that, to me, it needs to be justified because the thing that a lot of people forget is 
there's a person on the other end of that property. So when we sit down with a vendor, we're not sitting down with the bricks and mortar talking to the chip rock. We're sitting down with with Dave, with Carla, with whoever is actually owning this place. If if there's someone that is maybe super savvy, they can look at it and not get emotional. Be like, yeah, okay, that's that's not um, what we're going to take, but uh, I guess you can come back and counter offer them X. But if there's someone that has an emotional attachment to that property and you've just come in 20% below the asking price, which maybe is actually a fair price as well that could actually work, well, then you run that risk of them going, don't even talk to them. I've had vendors even say to me, like, nothing, just cut it off. And, and I look at that personally as a business person and think, well, no, just because they started really low doesn't mean we can't get them higher. But if a vendor, like my, my job is to, to make mm. suggestions and recommendations, not to make decisions. If a vendor actually says, no, no we're, we're not selling to that person, we're not selling to that person. So there's that real risk there. And I think coming back to like what you were saying there, Veronica, you, you really need to actually give justification to your offer. So if it's like, hey, I know my offer is a little bit low. It, it, this isn't going to knock your socks off. I'll tell you that right now. But here's how I actually came to the price because I feel that we need to do X, Y, and Z and not X, Y, and Z. We really love gold toilets and we want to put one in. That's your own personal opinion. That's different. But if it's like the begola is falling down and we really need to spend $40,000 doing this because this obviously needs some, some maintenance, repairs, all that kind of stuff it's different because what yeah. you you're giving then is the, the the power to that agent to sit down with a vendor and go here's how they came to that figure i mean i think it's a really interesting thing because you know when i'm chatting to clients around this and and to be honest i actually think that you know a lot of buyers are never going to be able to negotiate anywhere near as well as a buyer's agent that's a local specialist in that marketplace who's got a relationship with the agent that has can talk to the agent around you know the truth behind the sale right and the buyer's mm-hmm. agent's always going to sort of outsmart the punter on the street, right? But let's say you are not using a buyer's agent. Mm-hmm. I guess you really wanted to give the, the real estate agent because they're negotiating just as much as you with the buyer, with the vendor yeah, a lot of the time. Yeah, it's trying to say, look, you know, trying to get them to have a bit of flex. You know, end of the day, they're going to value probably more than what it's worth. They're probably believing that because the agent went in and told them it's worth more than it is to get the listing. Um, and they're trying to batten them down to, to get the deal happen. But... What the does the agent really care whether the buyer is telling the truth? But all they really want to do is tell a story that sounds plausible to the vendor. It could be true um, because a lot of the time the, the agent, I believe, is trying to outsmart the vendor a little bit to get them to to accept an offer. Do Do you think that you know it's all about the way that you position your offer? It's all about the story, and maybe you're thinking about buying a different property. So you're trying to give the agent a story so then they can pass that story on to the vendor. The agent probably doesn't believe the story a lot of the time, but it allows the agent to convince the vendor that they should take the offer. Do you think that that's sort of the way a buyer should be thinking is presenting that story to the agent so then they can tell the the vendor and hope the the vendor takes the offer? So I'm going to say yes, but with a but. So the but is in a seller's market, not in this market. In this market, easy is what's winning the game. Because when you've got literally 10, 20, 30 offers on a property, you, you're not going through everyone's story. Yeah. It's not happening. Otherwise, we're going to be sitting there all week talking about the, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just not working. But but if you're the no one- No one cares. 
Well, it's like money talks. Yeah, <laughs> but the, the path of least resistance, like it's it's not always the highest offer that wins as well. And I've, I've said this a, a million times on, on our show is that if you've actually got an offer that let's say it's really solid in every other way, but maybe it's five grand less or 10 grand less or whatever it is, but then the one that's a little bit higher, maybe the, there's a finance clause in there and maybe that finance clause is even kind of shaky or, or they're not actually listening to uh, you want a, yeah. a 90 day settlement, whatever it is. If, if you are the simplest person to deal with, actually, get, to give a quick example, if, if we've got time, um, my, my mate actually called me the other day and he was talking about an off-market opportunity and his big concern was that his offer was going to get shopped. So he basically tried to come in with this whole like macho attitude. And sorry if you're listening to this, Ryan. I love you, mate. But it was just, it wasn't going to work. It was going to backfire on him because it was just the whole like, ah, this is my offer. You get 24 hours, make up your mind. Otherwise, I'm out of here. It's like, okay, that is going to make you look like yep. a, a douche. It's, it's going to make you come across really difficult to, to deal with. Yep. <laughs> It's, it's just, it's not going to work in your favor. Now you can have the same effect, but you can start sort of using the whole more flies with, with honey than vinegar type approach and just say that there's another property that you're looking at. You actually really do like this one. And if, if you had to actually choose between the two, yep. this one is your preference. But because everything is going so quickly right now, I, I need to know, like if we've basically got 24 hours, we're getting pressure elsewhere, shield as well, always shielding with someone else. It's not you going, oh, we need this. We're getting pressure from this other agent right now for us to make a decision. So if you could just let me know in 24 hours, that would be awesome. And if it's a no, it's a no, but but here's my offer. I, I think it's pretty reasonable, but let's take it from there. You've achieved the exact same thing, but oh, the other thing I left out though as well is, is put, put in yeah. there, your finance is ready to go. Everything is super easy under the, the settlement period. I just said, right as to the vendor's instruction, like just make you simple and easy to deal with opposed to banging the fist on the table mm. and it will it'll work for you so much better. It's such a good point. We get a lot of clients who have actually gone through the whole ego process where they've basically yeah. gone to threaten, try to threaten, trying to trying to cajole, trying to trying to tell them that look, this deadline expires at five o'clock today. And I'm like, it's a seller's market. <laughs> You've got no leverage. Mm-hmm. You can go mm-hmm. out chuck your toys out of the cot, you can stamp your feet, all you bloody well want. The end of the day, you in this market, that is not going to work. It might work in a in a buyer's market, but in a buyer's market, you don't need to do it. <laughs> so it's mm. like it doesn't really. But that that's sort of rather funny. But um, what are, on the other side of, you know, you talk in your book about you know, how to read a selling agent's tricks and potentially save stacks of cash, right? Mm-hmm. Are the selling agents using as many tricks now? Do they need to? Um, and, you know, what are some of those tricks that we should be on the lookout for? I mean, you talked about that vague uh, language, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of that, uh, which is great and it's very, very true. But beyond that, can you give us some examples? Yeah, one that, uh, again, I've said before and I, I'll say it again because I'm still surprised that it still works, even though I say it publicly. I, I use it myself. So if I ever ask you this question, just shut up. Don't answer it. It's, it if you've just written an offer... And, and you look at the offer and go, oh, look, thanks, thanks a lot for that, Veronica. Look, just so I know, if, if this offer gets declined, what would your next offer be? Just so we can save the whole back and forth. The amount of people that actually say, oh, yeah, well, I'd, I'd probably give you an extra 20 grand. The price has just gone up 20 grand as soon as you say that. You, you can't. Do they actually say that? 100%. And it still baffles me. It's a bit the same as, you know, the agent that comes to me and says, right, well, you know, if there's an offer at 120, you know, 1.25 that the vendor's going to accept, do I need to come back to you? You know, mm-hmm. it's a little bit that the same thing. And I go, yeah, yeah, come back to me. I've got more money. <laughs> it's like- 
Yeah, but even then, just say, look, I always want to be kept in the loop. Right now, that's where we're sitting. But I mean, look, just just come back to us because I'd rather at least have that opportunity to say no because, and again, shielding, like I'm not exactly sure. This is a joint decision. This isn't just my choice to make. And and even yeah. if you don't have a partner that you're doing it with, make up a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, whatever it is. But to, to just, again, calmly and confidently say, it, it makes a huge difference. Because if you shut that gate, like you said, they're, they're not coming back to you. But if, if you completely leave it too far, too far open, well, then yeah, you're being exposed and you're vulnerable. I mean, is it, is it interesting? I mean, in a seller's market, right? Let's say we talk about that. Besides price mm-hmm. um, and terms, you know, what other things is going to give you a competitive advantage, right? Like terms are only going so far, you know, I mean, in terms of whatever the vendor wants really. Mm-hmm. Price, well, you can just pay more. But I mean, besides those two things, what are some of the tricks that buyers should be sort of leveraging to to get them a better result you know i guess i mean the only thing i can really think of is, is just being is really sort of befriending them and may hoping that you know some type of uh personal relationship would work for you i mean that can potentially work i think that agents do want to sell properties to people they like um, because they want to potentially use them to sell their properties one day you know like you know when they buy it they're more likely to use the agents that they liked when they put purchased um and so I mean, what other things can buyers do in a really hot seller's market to potentially increase their likelihood of getting a deal done? This, this can really work where, it, again, it comes down to the ease of it. So we've sold to, to a lot more BAs than we ever have before, like ever. And it's not just because there's more BAs now on the scene than there was sort of 12, 24 months ago, but it's because there's a lot more now paying attention in Adelaide. But one of the things that we'll find if we're sitting down with a vendor and let's say we've got three of the offers out of the however many have been made that are all pretty identical, but one of them is is using a BA. One of the things that we'll generally say is BAs won't waste their time with someone that's kind of, sort of, maybe thinking about buying. They've pre-qualified these people They've made sure that they've got their pre-approvals. They've got everything in place. We've also sold to Veronica 10 times before. She's been great to deal with. She's done blah, 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 blah. And it just, again, it sells that ease factor. And I find that having that transaction as well from a selling agent to a buyer's agent kind of makes it as a B2B to, B to B instead of a B2C almost. Whereas these other ones might be wonderful, but if they're all looking pretty identical, it then to me comes down to the reliability of it which using a BA can really help. And if you don't want to use a BA because it's not for everyone, I get that, then befriending an agent, like you're saying, Chris, the ROR, I call it, is return on relationship. If you can put the time in and actually, and especially because like most people think we sleep upside down, like we're, we're all vampires, we're all horrible people. Most selling agents out there are actually wonderful people just trying to do the best they can. There's of course some some numpties out there, there's some sharks out there for sure. But if, if you can actually get on the good side of an agent as well, then that that's only going to help. It's it's never going to hinder you. I think your ease one is definitely true because I mean, let's say we're assuming you're not using a buyer's agent, but you know, that if you present your offer, it's written, you've done your New South Wales, you've done your 66W, you've done your own building and pest, you've got all your contract checks, you've done it all really fast. Mm-hmm. You know, the real estate agents were pretty impressed, right? Because mm-hmm. they're like, well, yeah, they, they were really good. They asked for the contract straight away. They got it checked. They didn't stuff around. They booked everything in. They were really nice to deal with. Um, you know, they're more likely to put you to the queue. So I think just that admin of the b- offer um, 
And even if it's your first property, if the, the real estate agent thinks, wow, these guys know what they're doing, um, you know, that's something that you could potentially use to your advantage, right? Because if they're going, well, it's a verbal offer, it's a written offer, it's an email, you know, et cetera. Um, so what are some of the ways you can actually befriend the agent? They like to, for them to, you know, know that, you know, that you could potentially use that to your leverage. Like, is it just sort of, you know, the rapport building with them? You know, what are some of the tricks that you think that buyers should be using? It's not even tricks. It is exactly that. It's rapport building. Just always remember people are people. If, if you can find something that's that you've got in common, like our, our whole job, and this is what people don't see, is broken into two different sections, okay? One of it is is the service of selling houses. The other is actually finding houses and buyers. Like if you don't, you can be the best sales agent in the world. You don't have listings. It means nothing. Like you need to actually have people that need to sell their house to work for. So we, we always do what's called prospecting. Now prospecting is through like a CRM, which is a customer relationship management tool. You, you nurture people, you find out what their timeline is, what they need, and you give that to them. That might take two weeks. That might take, I've got some clients I still haven't sold their houses for. I've been talking to them for seven years, ever since I started. And like, they're actually turned into genuine friends now. Like one of them, I, I flew, he delivers newspapers in the plane and I went flying with him. Like it was awesome. It's really, really cool. But I also know though that there's there's more to that relationship than just the transactional side of it. And I'm not saying go around flying with people. That's probably a weird example to give now that I say that out loud. But what, what I'm saying is though, is you want to find common ground because we are all B-grade celebrities in our mind. And when I say we, I mean sales agents. You look at anyone's bio online, you can find a whole bunch of stuff about me. You find that I, I walked to Melbourne, I rode a bike from Darwin to Adelaide. There's all this stuff because I'm an agent. I love talking about myself. That's how it works. We need to pull all of that stuff out of you to try and find that piece of common ground. So if you go and let's say you want to buy in, I don't mm. know, wherever it is, Google the, the top five agents, the top 10 agents, read their bios and look for someone that actually clicks with what you like because you don't want to force it on. Mm. I'm not going to start talking to someone about like ballet. Like when I was in Russia, I, I walked out of the ballet in intermission. I just, I like to think of myself as a cultured person, but it, it didn't do it for me. So I'm not going to put that on if I find someone loves the ballet because that would be disingenuous. But if there's something else, if, if they like skydiving, if they're like well, obviously property and there's a common ground there, then sure, jump on that. Because then you can build from, from there and potentially into something that's really going to be mutually beneficial. Sometimes just going to open houses, smiling, being polite, yeah. giving your name and number without actually um, getting smart arsy about it, um, you know, giving them some feedback, saying that you like and don't like without yeah. being disrespectful and rude, you know what I mean? That Actually, you don't even need to read their bios or can you just have to be nice to some of these people. And look, yeah. there are assholes out there. Let's face it. Some agents are just machines. They really yeah. don't care. They're all about the transaction. Mm. And there are a lot that they are very much, lo you know, very, yeah. very big local players they've they live in their area they they yeah. you know, it, it, there's there's all different types of um agents out there now todd i'm curious to know because as a sales agent you must see some pretty dumb things that buyers do all the time and maybe you've done some dumb things yourself you did allude to it earlier with your first purchase do you have an example of a property dumbo for us uh, a lesson that we can all learn from buying with the the heart not the head that was probably the biggest one. And it's it's not like a terrible story as in everything just fell apart, but it was one of the stories that it's where everyone else that I was like friends with at the time and still are friends with now, 
did such a, a better job property-wise in the same time frame. I bought an apartment in the city because I used to walk past it all the time, not with my little bike, but I used to walk past it all the time when I was a kid and fantasize about living there. And then a girlfriend at the time that I really wanted to impress was flying over from Melbourne. Instead of maybe just renting the hotel room, I thought it was a bloody good idea to buy it for some reason. So I, I bought it, ended up living in it for, for seven years. Um, and the strata was just not that good for, for me and my financial situation. But basically in a 10-year window where I had especially one of my mates, Dale, he then bought the same, uh, same time. His property doubled in value within a two-year window. He then built a duplex on that. And within the same 10-year period, I'd sold mine that I bought for 280. I sold it for 350. Technically made money, but really I, I hadn't made money when you actually look at it properly. He'd, I think, got to a portfolio of six properties in the same time span. And it was all because I didn't want to listen mm. to the right people. I chose to listen to people. And this is probably the, the big, big sort of takeaway from it. Like one of my dad's mates who works on the, the rail line, great guy, super smart guy, in his lane, super smart guy, but was saying at the time, they're about to extend the tram line. These, these places are going to double in value. No, they're not. And, and they didn't. But, but <laughs> I got all this comfort from it. That I was making the right decision. And my wonderful choice that made me feel good was also a smart choice investment-wise as well because I didn't want to listen to who I needed to listen to. I, I listened to who I wanted to listen to to justify my actions. Oh, that's such a good one. I love that. You know, as we often talk about it here on airports or the Olympics, for God's sake, you know, these infrastructure projects, are, oh, property is just going to go crazy because of it. It's oh, not that simple. Mm-hmm. Um, that's such an interesting story. But also that lost opportunity over, over that period of time. And you obviously know now you're older and wiser. You realise that, that, you know, that was a cost in itself. But um, impressing the girlfriend, don't know about that one. But yeah, that was I, I, I find... First home, yeah. <laughs> These first home buyer stories are really interesting because the difference is, you know, 10 years down the track in terms of what else yeah. you're doing. And I think the first, I mean, your first home buyer guide is obviously my other podcast and then we've got a course for first home buyers. For that exact reason is that your first home is so important because mm-hmm. if you get that right foundation, then you have so many more options down the track. But it is such an interesting... <laughs> Example and the tram line is going to double. I love it. <laughs> Actually, another Dumbo here. I know somebody, I know of somebody, I should say, that just bought a property, an apartment in Alexandria, mm-hmm. and because they worked on, on the light rail. So there's a new light rail going into Waterloo and they were so convinced in the value of property in that area, they bought an apartment in Alexandria, a two-bedroom apartment in Alexandria where prices have done nothing and there's lots of new stock coming on and it took him seven months to rent the thing out. But that's all right because he also worked for the trams and prices are going to double. Yeah, uh, yeah. we see this a bit in the construction industry, to, to be honest. We've got lots of clients that, you know, the land leases to all the other big construction companies. We've just, you know, seem to have a lot of clients in that field and, um, you know, and they're very institutionalized around the product that they're building and the quality and they're sort of, you know, we're building quality products and they're great investments, et cetera. Um, and then they'll go, you know, get offered special deals because they work at the company and they get first access and et cetera. Um, and, you know, the, and all of a sudden they'll buy one, you know, they'll buy something off the plan, et cetera. And then a couple of years later, they realize, oh, potentially that wasn't the best option. There's more giving built, et cetera, mm-hmm. and, um, et cetera. So, yeah, it is, a, it is a challenge where you're sort of, you know, in this sort of self-fulfilling, you know, confirmation bias um, world where, you know, it's hard to get out. One question I did want to ask you, Todd, in terms of 
you know, telling agents what your budget is. Like, you know, it's sort of catch-22, right? You can say to an agent, oh, I want to buy something at 1.5 and I know these are big numbers when you're talking in Adelaide, but this is sort of the, mm-hmm. you know, the numbers we're always talking about over here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in terms of, you know, but, you know, really your budget say 1.8, right? Let's just say. Um, and, you know, if the agent doesn't know where you can stretch to, you know, really what you're willing to stretch for, uh, and you keep under-quoting the agent saying, look, oh, we could really want to buy something at 1.5, they start putting you in the wrong bucket, right? They start, Correct. you know, the properties that they're matching their buyers and their sellers towards. So where do you draw the line and actually just explain to an agent, like, this is the max dollar that we can spend? Because the reality is that's what the agent's trying to do is to extrapolate or get out of you as much cash as possible, um, you know, when you fall in love with a property. So where do you... Where do you draw the line on on the actual amount that you can spend? You tell the agent. Personally, I, I think that if your style of negotiating is all hinged on telling an agent that you can actually afford less than what you can, you need to go back and, and do a bit more research into other ways that you can negotiate because that means that there's also only just one pillar to it and as soon as that's knocked over, that's that's not a very strong place to be. But plus on, on the other side to that as well is in this market, to me, that's I'm just seeing it backfire on people all the time. That that one that I told you about beforehand, the, the in the sixes went to the the eights. I actually got an angry phone call from someone that that offered yeah. in in the mid sixes and said like, "What? Why didn't you come back to us?" And we said, "Because we asked for best and finals, and we did. We did the whole ring around. Everyone said that. Like, but what was your best and final offer? Oh yeah, but that wasn't really my best and final. So well, you you've got to ask the question though." Like, otherwise, you don't know where it's going to go. And that was because exactly what you're saying, Chris, they were scared that it was going to be used against them. In a buyer's market, it's a little bit different. But right now, mm. I just feel like it's a guaranteed recipe to, to keep missing out. Yeah. So, potentially, you should just say, look, I've got, in this situation, I've got 1.8. I can't spend a single dollar more. Come to me if you can get any properties within my budget. Do you know, do you think you should just be that sort of blunt with agents, you know, like... Um, but then, you know, how do you then wind it down? Because if a property comes on at, say, you know, 1.5 and they, you say, well, I don't want to pay 1.5, I don't want to pay a single dollar more. Well, they go, well, I know you've got a budget of 1.8. Like, they're going to potentially use it against you. So, how do yeah, you sort of, 100%. you know, it's a tight line, isn't it? Pull, pull it back to what the property's worth. So, just because you've got 1.8 to spend doesn't mean a million dollar property is worth 1.8. Does that make sense? So if, if you, you're looking at it and an agent's going, yeah, but I know you got 1.8 to spend. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah I, I do have 1.8 to spend and I'm quite happy to spend 1.8 on a $1.8 million property. But right now, because of X, Y, Z, and again, this comes back yeah. to, to knowing the market, knowing the area, I, I feel this yeah. one's actually worth 1.5. I mean, c- can you show me something otherwise? And and put, put it back onto them. But it's about knowing the market. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, go. It's a bit like... Some buyers can't deal with that because they actually, they might tell the agent, oh, well, what they're, you know, I've got 1.8, but they're like the frog in the pot, right? Mm. You know, that you don't put a, don't throw a frog in a pot of boiling water or bounce out. I, I really don't know how that frog would bounce out of it, by the way. <laughs> but anyway, it's the, the, the theory goes that if you put a, a frog in a pot of cold water and then you turn up the heat slowly, mm-hmm. then the frog gets poached as opposed to jumping out of the pot of boiling water. So a buyer can sort of say to you, oh, look, you know, I've got my, and this is where buyers have to be careful. Yeah, look, I, I've got 1.8, you know, I'll pay that for the right property or I'll pay less than that for the if the property is not worth it. 
However, the problem is the longer they go in the market, particularly if they are in a seller's market, and particularly if they've been missing out a lot, buyers do yep. get to a point where they go, okay, I've just got to throw the whole kitchen sink at it. And even if it's not working, yeah. I'm going to throw it at it just so I can put this and end to this pain and misery. And that's a danger for buyers. And mm-hmm. I, I honestly think it's it's more a danger for them than it is actually the agent using that. It's the buyer themselves giving up, capitulating, hands in the air, okay, I'm just going to do it and but suffer the consequences afterwards. I talk about that in the book as well. When people have been missing out for long enough, that's when it really starts to get dangerous for them, exactly like Veronica's talking about. Because, And you can tell them. They walk in with this kind of, the, the excitement is gone. It's not, yeah, we're buying a house. It's like, oh, we got another open home. Oh, yeah, we'll put an offer on this one, I guess. It's just going to go down the same rabbit hole that the other 50 went through as well. But it gets to a point eventually where they're like, we need a home. Just like, here you go, shut up and take my money. And that's not a good position to be in either. Like It's great for the seller and for the agent, but but not for you as the buyer. Yeah, it's a really tough one because I think, you know, a lot of buyers try to outsmart the agent. Oh, I've only got X, I want to spend X. And, you know, the agent, you know, is sort of playing that game with you and trying to figure out what you can really spend. Whereas, you know, sometimes it's being blunt with it. And, you know, look, really, we can look at anything as high as this. And, but, you know, if it's the right property and then it can negotiate down, you don't have to spend it on every property. And, um, but I think you can get easily too tricky for yourself. You're just sort of um, constantly underquoting yourself in the marketplace. You never get matched to the right property and um, you never actually get a deal done. So, and then you get these issues that Veronica spoke about. So, thank you so much for coming on, Todd. There's lots of tricks here and learnings for our listeners and how to how to win a negotiation. But it's really market dependent, it's age independent, um, and situational um, each sort of case. But it's good things to be thinking about these things before you actually go out and try to negotiate. Yeah, big time. And, and if you can, learn as much Thanks, as you can God. with this because it's going to make a huge difference. You, you can potentially save yourself 50, 100,000, whatever it is. And if, you, if you've got to bury your head in a few books for a few months, it will make a big difference for your life. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.